Kia ora and welcome to 76 Small Rooms, a podcast about architecture from Aotearoa, New Zealand. This is episode 44, Welcome to Easter. <laughs> it's our Happy New Year, start of the year in review. We are suffering the same labour shortages that the entire country is and Matt can't be here with us today. So we've got Jeremy Tash and myself, Arch, to cover off our holidays, a few a bit of recent news our gold medal, NZIA gold medal winners, mm-hmm. Stevens Lawson. We were looking forward last year, uh, being the um, doyens of impartiality that we are, we were ready to interview the gold medal winners. And then we found out that the winners had already been on our podcast, making us predictors slash influencers of future gold medal <laughs> winners. So past guests, uh, please take note. So we kind of kick off with that? Because that that's always... It's always a big deal. It's always a big deal in the industry. Citations are always a great chance to reflow to the work and look back on it retrospectively, which mm. the citations always are. And we talked about their body of work. But then there's also this kind of interesting discussion about their trajectory. And we, we talked to them about home ground, but they've done an, an enormous catalogue of private residential work and then transitioned into multi-unit residential work, which is a re- really kind of you know, favourite topic of ours. And the first pair, I should say, to um, win the gold medal since 2001, when I think it was awarded posthumously to the group architects. So that's sort of significant as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It raises a question we're all kind of wondering about, you know, the naming of people in larger practices and what that means. And there's an interesting kind of thread there about the role that individuals play within that and it's all you know it's all a big team and all of those sorts of things and not to suggest that both of those guys are not intimately involved with all of those projects hearing them talk about it hearing them talk about the particularly home ground and what a saga that was and the commitment kind of to that mm. um the other one we were uh, we were sort of paralleling about today was the announcement that um david chipperfield has won the pritzker which really prompted the question about what does it mean in a practice of that size and awarding to names that's right and and not only practice of that size but a fundamentally collaborative endeavor that architecture is Mm. um there's a lot of conversation that's been going on for a long time now about star architecture and the um the wrongness of identifying primarily male you know Mm otoms of architecture and funnily enough although the pritzker has made great strides in kind of unpicking that at its heart that prize is generally awarded to a single person, which tends to perpetuate that notion a little bit that there's an architect at the centre and a whole lot of support staff hanging off that mm, person. Mm. Um, not that I disagree with the choice of David Chipperfield, because firstly, I have to say I don't know his work super well. I've only been to one building in person, the Neue Museum in Berlin, which I thought was astounding. But I like what the choice said about that shift away from star architecture in a sense too, because his buildings... Um, certainly seem very rigorous, but also they don't seem wedded to a style or a dogmatic approach. Um, They seem quite humane, and they also seem that he is adapting a set of principles on a case-by-case basis, and those principles can be quite elastic depending on the context. Mm, I mean, I've also been to um, Das Neues Museum and was... You said it so much better than I (laughs) Das Neues Museum. Um, High school German. Yeah. Um, 
I yeah, I was so impressed by it, and I, I think you're right. And if you kind of look and read um, a little bit more about his practice, he is actually very good at recognizing the team team players within it. Um, I think it is a really interesting thing, though, because inevitably some people end up leading teams and some people are important parts of those teams. So, you know, those people who lead practices aren't there by accident. So it's not inherently problematic to give them prizes, is it? No, Mm. because generally there's been an awful lot of work that has gone into getting to where they are. Mm. Including their beginnings as a perhaps even a sole practitioner. Exactly, yeah, yeah. or so on somebody else's team. I mean, I'm aware of a certain very prominent awarded international architect who may even be a Pritzker winner, who I won't name because they're probably a listener, um, <laughs> who is who roams around their building being photographed um, standing in front of every submission on the boards with a pen making a little sketch <laughs> so that that can be included in the submission to assure the client that they have that person's personal involvement um, in the scheme. Wow. And that might be just simply a symptom of scale. This is an extremely large practice where um, it would be not practically possible to actually have any touch time mm. with that person outside of quite a small selection of projects. Mm. But you get into interesting things there about brand it's actually really about brand and attaching the brand of that person to all of the work, mm. which is a decision. It's okay. not a right or a wrong. It's just a particular brand decision. And when make. you get to a certain scale, it does become largely a fiction also, right? Mm. Yeah. Mm. But, I mean, talking about that building specifically, Tash, we touched on it briefly before we started recording. I just I found Das Neues Museum <laughs> <laughs> really interesting because... It seems so undogmatic in that as you walk through this kind of procession of heritage spaces, the number of approaches that have been taken seem to be, you know, so so highly contextual that every room had been approached in a different way. Some had kind of quite assertively modern interventions placed in them. Some you could barely detect the hand of um, Chipfield architects. Mm. Um, And... It was so refreshing and sort of disorienting in a funny way to kind of not feel this kind of consistency from room to room. And I realised it was part of the way I was thinking about architecture is this kind of assertion on an old building when you're working within it that there's this choice made at the outset that we're going to reveal all the layers of history or we're going to make um, our interventions very clear and that kind of stuff. But this moved and fudged all the way through that building and I found it fascinating. Mm, yeah, I mean, I it was quite a long time ago that I, I was there, probably 10 years ago. Um, but I just I just felt, though, that, you know, all of the detailing, first off, is just, it's impeccable, you know, and the way that you move through those spaces feels really fluid and easy. Yes. Um, and I think that's quite a hard thing to do often in an older museum. But I also sort of... I don't know, I quite liked the fact that there was that, those points of difference and then perhaps that was a way of them reading that original architecture that was there mm-hmm. too, which wasn't a uniform response in terms of the older building or the images that I've seen of it anyway. Mm-hmm. So it, to me it felt like a really sensitive um, approach to um, uh, re-energising that building and restoring it. 
yeah, it felt just, it was such a great experience in its totality um, being there. And I'm not somebody who tends to go to gravitate towards museums of historical things. I tend to end up more on the contemporary art end of the spectrum, but I found that kind of deeply pleasurable experience, actually. Yeah, me too, although I think maybe it's because I was busy looking at the architecture. <laughs> yeah, possibly the same. <laughs> why, um, why is he good? Just ask like a super plain English question. Why is he good? Why is his work good? Hmm. When I look at it, I think of, and again, I haven't visited a lot of his buildings, but when I look at photographs, I sense a kind of stripped back quality that I find, you know, aesthetically pleasing, but it's not just about aesthetics because it, I feel that that minimal approach also um, reflects a kind of rigor in terms of his approach to site and form making, um, that it's not... It doesn't feel like the architectural ego is in the forefront and that that's receded a little bit. Mm -hmm. mm. And yep. I, I sort of felt, and this is on the, the basis of being to only one of his buildings, but it was just highly legible. I could I could understand where I was. I could sort of see where the insertions were. I, I feel like I understood what is an incredibly complex building mm. and that was pleasing to me. It's very well-mannered work. Yes, it is. It very well-mannered work. Mm. Very well-mannered. Sometimes, again, from photographs to the point of being slightly inert, but yeah, I might be being a bit critical. a bit austere. Well, I think that was the thing that surprised me because I think previously I'd only seen his uh, work in photographs and I'd not dismissed it, but I'd categorised it as being in, a little inert, you know, very beautiful, but perhaps a bit removed and going into that building, um, I felt really differently about being in those spaces. So that was that was a surprise to me. So the citation says his buildings are, quote, always characterised by elegance, restraint, a sense of permanence and refined detailing, adding, in an era of excessive commercialisation, over-designing and over-exaggeration, he can always achieve balance, end quote, which is a fairly um, straight up and down telling of a collection of work. Yeah, I guess there's an, an inherent modesty to it, and I'm using that word carefully mm. um, because some of the structure is very large and have showy amounts of fastidious detail mm. And, mm. and that kind of thing. But I guess it's that his so-called signature is not clearly evident. You don't look at a building yeah. like Chipperfield. Yeah, mm. like you do with Lieberskind, the fantastic vandal <laughs> that he is. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of him yeah. in the building. And you know, Hadid, like all there is yes, a lot yes. of buildings there. Mm. Like, Toyo Ito, um, Tadeo Ando. There's a lot of buildings like that you look at and you see the personality of the maker. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And you might say the same here, but if, if it is, it's it's quite a it's quite a restrained, um yeah, almost under designed. I, I'm I'm wary of venturing too much because I haven't been to any of his buildings and there's always mm -hmm. that kind of happening thing about review review by photography. Yeah, I feel like I've gone too far already. Yeah, which I'm really <laughs> wary of. Yeah. Um, Getting back to Stevens Lawson. Oh, yeah, we started like there. Yes. Yeah, I kind of... One of the things I was reflecting on when they got the gold medal is um, the number of beautiful houses they've created and we've kind of seen less of those because I think some of them are in this sort of that stratosphere of when um, the people that own them just say absolutely not to publication and mm -hmm. so there may be one or two or zero images of 
of those homes in existence. But it seems to me that they've also, a lot of, I think, people, a lot of architects that play in that realm pay lip service to doing accessible housing from time to time. And for Stevens Lawson, it's not just for me about home ground, the city mission, which is a stupendous achievement, of course, but also how they've been willing to dig into that area of mass housing through their partnership with Jalcon Homes. And mm-hmm. yeah, you wanted to touch on this, which I think is fascinating. I yeah. think it's really interesting because they've had to relinquish a lot of control over that. And in some of those projects, their work has amounted to form making with not too much control over the interiors, but control of exterior materiality and volume and things like that. And in other places, it's a bit more detailed. But I think their commitment to working in conditions that I think they found quite challenging at times, and I'm speaking for them here um, without having talked to them in detail about this, but just the, and the award citation for Gary Nicholas refers to this, that kind of willingness to partner where you're relinquishing control, which architects are not renowned for doing, Mm -hmm. and just treading into areas where you might be able to make a difference, but you're not kind of quite sure how the whole thing is going to be is going to play out. And I think the award in part felt to me a commendation for their openness to those kind of ventures mm-hmm. and their ability to actually make them happen. Because I think a lot of those conversations have gone on around the fringes of architecture for a long time, but I haven't seen many firms happily partner up with a mass housing company and create work that they're proud of. Mark McKenzie did a fantastic development. Yes, they've done some kind of work. That's mm-hmm. right. Yep, yeah. yep. And always kind of applaud that. I applaud that kind of trajectory, that, that direction. A eh? absolutely. I mean, for a lot of practices, it would be a huge risk to to go down that avenue. But uh, you know, I think um, there is a a lot of learning, a lot of experience um, about what it means to make a home that can be brought to bear in those um, uh, mass housing projects and I think you know the ones that I've seen you know where where experienced architects have been involved there is a different quality to the spaces Mm. and I think that's a real gift to be able to um, for other people uh, to be able to experience that who might not normally be able to afford architecture with capital A. Mm. I think so and it also lends a greater quality to the feeling of subdivisions like Hobsonville Point where you have a really high quality kind of format that's been set up by Hobsonville Land Company and Isthmus did the master planning there, but also the built work to some degree reflects that level of care as well and hopefully provides good experiences for the people that are living in them too. Well, I think there's a lot of aspiration um, tied with those projects to improving the, the quality of and variety of, of homes on offer. And I think that's, that, that is important to recognise because um, there are a lot of homes uh, churned out every year that perhaps are not as aspirational as that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at, at the end of the day, we only get movement when we have people who are willing to come in and think differently about things. Yeah, It's that relationship thing, because there was a quote in the article that mentioned not only the work, but their, um, you know, their compassion, generosity, but it, talk, it says, you know, they have a talent for relationships. 
you were talking about about this, and I actually used this as an excuse to plug that although Matt can't be here today, he was getting his design thinking out on paper in another prodigious uh, opinion piece on stuff today about the need for housing design to be responsive to the people who yes. are living in it. Yeah. And so that relationship, at whatever scale it is, family, clifftop home, multiple groups of multiple types of families in a multi-unit kind of development, um, <clears throat> it's always an avenue I'm always interested to see mm. architects be generous in working on the projects that can have the largest impact on the greatest number of people mm. yes. as opposed to being, it's interesting, comes back again to Chipperfield, as opposed to being a... Um, a creative expression of their identity and needs and values and beliefs. <laughs> and and I think all, a lot of us sit somewhere on a scale and one is more, more um, artistic and one is more perhaps service-based. You know, I've, I've increasingly moved from the former being, we talked about this heaps, I always said that when we were educated, Tash, that I think like our design teaching was about how to be a design director, mm. probably for a place doing a, an exquisite home on a clifftop. But, you know, I'm increasingly moved towards the idea that architecture is service. So when we see talented architects like Stevens Lawson, McKenzie and others turning their hand to projects that are used by or lived in by hundreds of people a year, I'm just kind of really applauded. I'm really excited because mm. it's, mm. it's seeing our vocation and profession have mass impact. And it challenges the stereotype, which is frankly really common in New Zealand, that architects are at the other end of that scale. Mm. Totally. Bad ideas, nice ideas but can't be built, uh, all of those kind of things that we're all familiar with and, and sometimes are valid. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it, you actually, I think, Arch, introduced us to uh, an article recently which starts to sort of question exactly that. Um, the, Is this our friend Kate Wagner at McMansion Hell? Yes, that's it. Yes. Yeah. And I think if you're listening, Kate, please follow us on <laughs> we'll Twitter. We'll put this up on our socials, right? Yeah. yeah. Like Azure magazine it's in, I believe. Is it? Yes. Yeah, okay, good yeah. catch. Well, it's a really great article. Maybe you can kind of um, give us a synopsis at... Fortunately, Jeremy has given us, uh, at my, um, I was going to say encouragement, but taunting is probably a better word, um, added some notes to our calendar invites. We've undergone a little bit of management. Taunt. It was more some sort of it's more passive. exceptional passag behaviour. Yeah. <laughs> and I should say, We've undergone no. some organisational restructuring here to streamline our meeting processes. I know, but, th you know, Jeremy and Matt were the ones who, like, poo-pooed Trello, so we're, it's not like it's not been tried before. That's true. <laughs> yeah. That's true. And I, I did like have to print out... Laundry here for <laughs> I did have to print out Trello and post it to Matt, <laughs> and he still wouldn't get into it. We do love you and miss you, Matt. Yeah, I guess it was... Um, I, I really like the quote about few of us live in architecture, like we live in vernacular, right? And she yes. was, she was, um, yeah, it was another great piece. She talked about like her role as a speculator and a critic. Um, but that was mainly about this obsession with the extremely luxurious single family home, which we're totally guilty of uh, here in New Zealand. We've had some interesting chats with like Simon and Here Magazine about wanting to broaden away from that. And Jeremy, in your own work, you were interested moving you know trying to move away from that to other definitions of of descriptions of design mm. residential design well i felt sort of culpable when i was reading it because she has this quote where she says the more house porn i consume and i have to consume it for work the more i find myself rolling my eyes wondering who exactly is this for who lives like this why should any of us normal people or even the field itself care so much if, that you've created a sweeping villa 
featuring an athletic concrete cantilevered roof that pays homage to the peaks of mountains and the vernacular architecture of XYZ. I'll take the polemical stance. We shouldn't. And as the former magazine editor, um, I did feel a bit culpable in the sense, but I did, it was interesting because I posted, I put, I shared the link to the story and I did wrestle with this at the time. And I was kind of thinking about the reasons why, um, magazines end up in this kind of house spawn space and the house spawn space i think one thing kate wagner didn't touch on is that there's and an it's escapist. not just magazines it's a very internet thing it's an internet yeah, thing too totally. but there's an escapist pleasure to it which sort of relates to porn so and i think the escapist pleasure is relevant to some degree because people might just dream about these spaces and it's fine that they're not able to achieve them it doesn't feel like it's raising a middle finger to them if you handle it right editorially but also that you know, we published lots of small homes and home magazine, and it also felt that really grandiose places didn't resonate with readers in the same way. Covers with those kind of homes on wouldn't sell as well. Um, but it was also, I think, primarily Here. because yeah, yeah, primarily because my contacts were through architects who would then identify projects and ask me if they seemed appealing, and then introduce me to the owners and check everything was okay. Didn't have the same access to the individual owners of multi-density places or medium-density places because of the distance that architects would have with the inhabitants of those places a lot of the time. Mm. And also, I have to say, this is, you know, we're talking seven or eight years ago now and longer when I started there in 2005, there just wasn't a lot of good quality apartment buildings mm. or medium-density mm. around. And I think mm. now it would probably change. Yep. It is changing. Mm. And I think the other thing is that often the work that we see published in magazines or online is because it is pushing a new idea or a different idea or, or, mm. or there, there are there's something more behind it than just it's expensive. Um, yes. And so uh, I think in that um, medium-density housing space, um, there have been fewer projects which are looking to do something different mm. or re recently in New Zealand. It's a bit more formulaic because of financial and other necessities, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, But I was also thinking that there's sometimes been interesting apartment projects, and I can't think of a specific one, but I'm sure there were ones where I'd go, I can't publish that because, you know, their couch is too ugly or something. Not that bad, but you know what I mean? The, no, the, but, the interior has to stack I, up in a way that makes it... Totally. ...that yields enough images to make this thing work. Totally. And, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. I mean, it's a bit like, you know, the furniture becomes a bit like the accessories that you would see in a fashion magazine. Yeah, they're written up exactly that way, like right. a photo shoot. So the person is there and there's a little list in the corner built by... Think, you know, exactly. and, and now we've got the, you know, we've got the advertorial at the end of the glossy photographs of furniture by this, appliances by this. Yeah. It's really uncannily similar. But, but, mm. but would you pick it up if it wasn't furnished? If there were no, there was no, like, I don't think that you would because what you're looking at is not the built form per se. It's the projection of being able to live in this it's still space. an idealized lifestyle of course which is why it's got that that that, that fantasy and escapist which is why she uses the analogy with porn totally the, the, the aspiration that, that escape the unreality yeah and i guess also you know most of homes advertisers when i was there were furniture companies yeah and they didn't insist that their products were in shoots but kind of helped to 
make that subliminal or not subliminal very direct connection in some senses yeah. you know we didn't style a lot of homes by bringing in truckloads of furniture yeah. very rarely but um that's sort of a kind of subtle pressure going on in the background to some degree i think there, there's a there's an ecosystem there right that, that's good yeah. Yeah, yeah um but i think the other thing was and i mean she is an architectural critic as well and um potentially there is less architectural criticism of private houses. And mm. I guess that raises a couple of things. Should there be? Is that important? Why should the why should that part of architecture escape that? Mm. Or does it need it? I don't well, know. Well, it's interesting, right, because I was also thinking that a lot of the stuff that pops up in my feed is kind of minimalist cabins on Nordic islands and that kind of stuff, <laughs> and it's kind of completely unrealistic um, in many ways. But... Um, I don't know if it's just the way my algorithm is working, but a a lot of grandiose stuff that is the kind of thing that seems to piss Kate Wagner off and would piss me off too if I was seeing it um, just doesn't kind of appear. There is a, in some cases, fake humility to a lot of the content that pops up in my feed just because it looks simple but it's expensive. Yeah. Yeah. I'm getting a bit tangled there in my thinking, but you know what I mean? No, no, I do, but I wasn't sure whether she was. Yes. I don't know. House I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't, <laughs> your house porn's okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, when I posted the story, somebody did contact me, um, messaged me and said, oh, it's kind of, I think, you know, I said the story was really interesting and um, this person said, actually, I think that she's sort of a bit overwrought. Everybody intuitively understands the place of house porn and like you said, Tasha, it does in some instances present ideas that are interesting that aren't just fluff. Mm. Um, so nobody's being duped here was the kind of yeah. message of that. Yeah. Everybody's kind of a willing participant. Mm. Um, I guess when you're reading a sort of shelter magazine, you're not grappling with urban problems. No, like you're looking to leave the them need behind. For great <laughs> <and> things. Yeah. <laughs> <That's right>. Firmly. <laughs> Yeah, but no, I'm still thinking about it, actually. I thought it was a really interesting piece. Well, um, I, I think the other thing uh, about it is because part of me wasn't sure whether she was also criticising architects, but then you also have to kind of look at the ecosystem of architecture and who pays for that mm-hmm. as yeah. well. And, and she and talks directly about that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah does she? Yeah, I mean, or she talks. I... There's some great lines in here. Right, Maybe well, I'll, I didn't I'll, I'll share it, and unlike last you. time where I said we'll share all of the buildings we're talking about, we will actually share the articles we're talking about here, so we'll follow through on that as part of our overall organisational restructure. <laughs> um, you know, she talks about how she'd far rather see what can be, you know, these are things we all talk about, especially if you do teaching, um, more interested in what one can do with great constraints than with what one can make with carte blanche. It's not challenging to make a nice house when your client buys the land and hands you a million dollars, but to make homes for 500 families in the city, balancing the need for good design with affordability. For a non-profit developer on a public housing budget, it's a way bigger deal. And I don't think any of us would disagree that as a design challenge, it's completely different. No, but in a funny way, I think what she's doing is she's targeting architectural media as the bad person here when it's actually a societal critique that our attention is not being directed in the areas totally. where it's most required. I, I mm. totally agree with you there. And I think 
um, friend of the show, Sean Flanagan, wrote a really good article on this a few years ago in one of the NZIA bulletins where he questioned whether private housing should move to the periphery of uh, con- the architectural concern in New Zealand. And I think that that, that is an interesting question mm. and it is interesting to unpick the reasons why why um, why architecture of the architecture of private homes is is still so important. I would also say though there is an there is an economic tie up there, and I think what I was alluding to Arch in my comment before was that for a lot of practices which are small, they cannot afford to do multi res where the fees are really really low and still just to get a building which is quite complex in itself before you start pushing you know big ideas to get that over the line mm-hmm. for the fees that are available is really really hard mm. like there are bigger firms which effectively kind of take loss leaders on the, the yeah. first few to kind of go okay well we know our thing so they can build up the capability it. and the skill totally and the, the, the detailing repetition and all of those things yeah totally so you know if 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 you're a small practice and you actually want to give your staff a halfway different decent sort of wage and and reasonable hours and so on there is a question there about the types of projects that as an architect Mm -hmm. you know or a practice you can take on that feed into this so i think that i think it's a bit more complex we talk about what we did in our holidays. Yes. Tell us what you did on your holidays. Well, I just, it's, just, it's just an excuse for me to talk about Sydney Modern and the Art Gallery of New South Wales, which I think I previewed my visit. You the, did. You did. I'm, I'm sure the listeners are eager to hear how it actually turned out. Um, yeah. I think it's so good um, to get the part that I thought was dumb out of the way first of the building. This is so Sydney Modern, for those of you who don't know, I'm sure most of you do. It's the new wing of the Art Gallery of New South Wales in Sydney that's been designed by Sana. Um, Nishizawa and Sejima and it tumbles down the hill beside um, the existing Art Gallery of New South Wales but is a separate structure entirely and the thing that threw me a little bit and is my kind of only criticism in a sense was on approach I was coming from the north and up through the park and the first thing I encountered was this kind of curvy wire fence which is sort of like hurricane fencing, but with a chic Japanese edge. But the building has all these terraces that kind of don't run into the landscape because it stands distinctly um, from the terraces, but there are pathways that lead in. But I don't know if it's a temporary thing because there's still a um, garden by First Nations artists being installed on one side that might connect up a lot of Mm. those paths. But the way these terraces are fenced feels almost like somebody mixed up the regulatory concerns and at the last minute some fire inspection person or health and safety person came and said, you can't have that drop off that edge to this. And they all panicked and put up these, you know, kind of elegant, but they feel antithetical to the spirit of the building, which has this great openness to the landscape around it. That aside, um, I loved how casual the building feels. Mm. Um it has these really large interstitial spaces between galleries. It's, there's a lot of natural light. Um, everything's free, so you just kind of breeze in past this little kiosk into this big wide open lobby. Um, there are, I think, and it might have just been because I've been reading Alexandra Lang's book about um, shopping malls in America, 
that there are aspects of the shopping mall about this building that I think are really successful. There's these boxes that sort of tumble down the landscape and there are escalators going down, connecting all these levels and things. And the gaps between the gallery boxes do feel akin to those kind of mall forecourts and gathering spaces and the kind of spaces that, you know, teens and families feel comfortable hanging out in between and kids can run around and there's just really robust benches to sit on that nothing felt super precious. But also, um, it's not at all star architecty. There's no, it's really hard to photograph as a casual visitor because there's no statement angle. Mm. And there's also no kind of statement progression through or anything like that. But it unfolds, if you saw it diagrammatically, you'd think, oh, this is kind of going to be interesting to go through. But we never used a guide, a map. And after a few hours there, we kind of found ourselves in the lobby again. We then did look at one and we went, oh, we've seen everything. We just were intuitively led by the design mm. through Yeah, that's always a great outcome. Mm. Totally really great. unconsciously. Yeah, that's always fantastic. It's it was fun really to do good. Well. And it was a collection-based show when we were there, but the, the kind of variety of the gallery spaces is great also because some have a degree of natural light illumination, others are a little bit more sealed off, the ceiling heights change and things like that. So you don't feel like you're just in this kind of hallway with a progression of galleries off it ever. Mm. Um, and there's just, there's great um, insertion of public art, like Lisa Rehan, public art, um, kind of video art and things in the interstitial spaces, like Lisa Rehan's big video work is visible from the restaurant across these kind of built forms with a big plunging um, interstitial space below. Um, nice material use, it's kind of sun as kind of white poles and glass, but there's also sandstone. Well, no, it's a kind of, uh, replica of sandstone that they've created because um, they found the sandstone too stripy to go behind art and a kind of whitish stone as well that's kind of used in a tiled form but yeah it's just a kind of it feels like the future of that type of architecture in a sense and that's just it's not trying to impose itself on visitors or the art that's inside and it's comfortable to let People just enjoy those spaces for what they are. So it's kind of deceptive in its cleverness, I guess. Mm. Mm. Highly recommend. Great. I do like a bit of summer. Your yeah. holiday? Oh, my holiday. Well, I was lucky enough to spend five days in Japan, or in Tokyo, rather. And uh, it was my first time to Tokyo. And um, I managed to get a little bit of architecture and it was an, an architectural trip so um, I had to sort of squeeze it in and around um, my kids. <laughs> it's hard to not get a massive dose of architecture. Tokyo is sensory amphetamine. It, it really, you know? really is just to kind of be in the streets and kind of go, oh wow, look at that you know, sort of skinny building wedged in between those things. I, like, it was really cool. I loved every aspect of it. But I did do the sort of the grand walk up um, on Sando Avenue um, where there are all of the star architects sort of playing. It's like a theme park, right? Totally. It is. Totally. Like, like, yeah. oh, yeah, in the best way. Totally. And uh, we started at Kengo Kuma's um, uh, museum uh, at the eastern end um, which was a delight it's uh, um, sort of set amongst gardens 
it's an incredibly elegant cafe um, which really feels like your it feels really like a garden pavilion and then the um, museum itself is um, quite compact but um, uh, uh, organized under this large gabled roof it has a really sort of um, a kind of an elegant but home-like feel to it. I, I really enjoyed that. And then from then, there on, sort of walked westward and, you know, past the Herzog and de Meuron Prada building and their uh, design for Miu Miu across the street. Um, uh, and uh, all of the buildings are excellent. I mostly experienced them from the outside. But probably the building that made the um, biggest impression on me was that I was in Ginza as the <sighs> sun was setting and I rounded a corner and caught Renzo Piano's um, uh, uh, Umi's, Umi's building. Umi's building, isn't that awesome, mm. mate? Oh, yeah. honestly, it was just, you know, I mean, my jaw was dropping. That was so, so good. You know, that kind of... Um, uh, that big idea that's sort of robust enough to understand um, all at once it's sort of beautiful at different times of the day but then you know when you get up close kind of the resolution of some you know details like the corners and the um the stairwell and so on it, yeah it was a thrill and it was a thrill to kind of see people moving in and around it and I got it at just the right time of day so yeah my my cup was full at that point that's so good <laughs> mm. nice and how about you? Well, I was in the exotic locations of Akaroa and Ruakaka, um, taking in the sites there. It was a short holiday. Um, probably the architectural focus of the summer and continuing now is our own little little cabin project on Rakino, yeah. which I'll share in due course and is now officially on site. We could do a podcast critique from it when it's completely on site, site oh, is it? <laughs> yeah, gosh. When and, you throw us out because we slag it off. Yeah, <laughs> it's just be a lot of redaction. Um, but um, so that is our little intro. We will um, we will endeavour to advance our little cope up further this year. I want to kind of close with, um, I think, two really interesting crossovers of some of my favorite things which is a kind of pop culture architecture crossover last night in Auckland there were two really significant live <laughs> gigs um, and they both have architectural parallels which have been being pointed out to me today <laughs> which I'd like to touch on um, the audience of these gigs was divided into two different spectra last night there was a certain crowd seeing pavement at the Civic yeah. and they have uh, they have a song called the hex which features the lyric Architecture students are like virgins with an itch they cannot scratch. <laughs> Never build a building till you're 50. What kind of life is that? So that hit a little hard for me. And at the other end of the spectrum was the much larger crowd out at Mount Smart going to see the beloved um, Harry Styles, mm -hmm. uh, whose cover of his album Harry House was critiqued in Architectural Digest. <laughs> so I thought that that was a nice little neat architectural link between two of the live acts. <laughs> There's a nice architectural link. Actually, it was fantastic walking around Bridemount yesterday where people were queuing up to get buses yeah. to go to Mount Smart. And I didn't realise that, I knew that Harry Styles is incredibly popular, but I didn't realise people dressed up so much to go to his yeah. concert. So there were feather boas and pink cowboy hats. Yeah, and, and people were there first thing in the morning. I actually was walking around going on, you know, a Tuesday afternoon going, why are all these really young women going to hen's parties? <laughs> 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 What's happening 
with the world. I know. Welcome to the um, <laughs> welcome to the completely out of touch club. Yeah. Um, and we'll have a separate, more urban design-based discussion about how what a nightmare it is that it takes longer to get to and from a concert venue than the length of the concert, which is a separate, wider-ranging urban design question. But we'll wind up there with those two little kind of pop culture architecture crossovers. And thanks, everyone, for listening. And let us know if there's anything you'd like to hear more about. And we will. Um, we really want to get to a building. Uh, for a future episode because it's been a long time since we've recorded on site from something exciting and interesting and intriguing so we're going to try and do that we are we're hopefully talking about co-housing next month well hey is it mm. in the calendar yeah I want is the agenda in it no not yet okay well normally I'd put the agenda in but let's <laughs> <laughs> that go go fuck yourself right, so, <laughs> so before we come to blows kakite thank you everyone goodbye bye bye bye